right, that's enough. You people right over here, calm it down a little bit. You're getting a little Stop too it. nice, and Stop you know, too much nice. nice could be a problem. So, have you noticed, except for Rob Mitchell and Steve Hill, that if you just stand here, everybody gets quiet? Yeah, it's, except it's, for those two. Those two guys. They'll just keep talking forever. I just have to brag on my staff. I uh, told them that I felt God is calling me to plant a church in Barbados. I've had enough of the winter. And they brought Barbados to me. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. You did this for me, right? All of this? It's always all about you. Jim uh, just made that about him uh, for all of you. See, I'm all ready. Look. Summer's here. Okay. Now, if you've attended amphitheater services, though, this is how he looks there, too. So it's like that wishful thinking. (laughs) But this is all you get, too, by the way, boss. This is, it's not really Barbados. Sorry. This so, is it? Yeah, this is it. What is all this? This is it? <laughs> this is it? <laughs> what is a lot this? of hard work on this. Yeah, so what is it? What is all this? VBS, Jim. What's VBS? Yeah. Oh, Vacation Bible. <laughs> You're going to have to educate me and half of my friends out here. <laughs> well, Vacation Bible School happens in this building now for, I don't know, a hundred years, and there will be one million children in here in two weeks. It doesn't start tomorrow, but it starts actually a week from tomorrow, right, Julie? Am I correct, correct. on that? June 11 a, million, through 15. a million children. Yeah. I think he rounded up a little. I'm going to Barbados that week. Yeah. <laughs> Jim doesn't do anything that week anyway. So. I don't do anything. <laughs> actually, out, the I'm truth is, Julie and I were talking as far as the actual quantity of children. If you took the total number of children that attend elementary schools in Summit County and pulled it out, it's over 20% of the kids will be in this room for VBS. Is that great? It's a pretty big deal. It is. Now you see how big this ministry is. Well, it's a big deal to us. And before we get into how you can be involved, because we want you to be involved in part of the process I want you to just have a little snapshot into what our vision is. Part of what we do all of this for, the kids don't care, to be honest, all of these little details. I care. You think they care? Okay, well, I didn't think they cared. But I know this for sure, the parents care. When the parents walk in with the kids from our community, they're like, I see it all the time, they're like, wow, these people care about our kids and that's really important to is us. Is that what so. the nets are on the walls out there? All the all nets on the walls, the, the, the crazy little fish critters or hanging on, all the stuff. There will be a sale on this. There's going to be a lot more next week when you get here when we're ready to go. So that's what that's about. Excellent. But Julie, how can they uh, help? This? There's this. Yeah. So in your bulletin, there's a little green slip of paper. If you want to serve at VBS, you don't actually have to physically come to VBS, but we need supplies, um, prayers. That's obviously one of the biggest ways that all of you can you know, serve. Um, and so you find that little sheet of paper, and you can mark on there, and I can contact you. We, need, uh, we feed about 100 crew leaders. So that's sixth grade you know, through adult, and that's in the morning. So if you can make an egg casserole and bring that in, that would be super helpful as well. So, so what happens if nobody helps? If no one helps, VBS doesn't happen. Because <laughs> it's not me. I, don't, I do very little ah. that week. All my work has been done, mostly. Me too. It should be by then. Um, and so without people serving and volunteering, um, then VBS wouldn't go. So See how important you are? So it takes all of you. To make that happen. And please pray. Mm -hmm. We always have lots of children here who come from unchurched families. Mm -hmm. This is a great ministry because they will hear the gospel. Absolutely. So if you can come even one day, Julie can use your help. You could come and and let her know. Mm -hmm. And we'll fit you in somewhere. It's a blast. It's truly a blast. 
So that's one way you can pray. And then as Gomer Pyle used to say, supplies, supplies, supplies. So just uh, help us with all the stuff that needs to be done. Thank you. A couple people worked on that. Thank you. Thank you. This is a so, tough crowd. Yeah. Oh, we're very excited. So we look forward to hope, seeing at least all of these kids. I see a lot of faces that will be there. It's going to be awesome. So, so you're saying Barbados might have to wait. Well, you can go. The rest of us will be here working. <laughs> hey, one uh, other thing while we're... Julie, you're free to go. And kiddos? Kiddos, are we are going to go to yeah. the youth room, please. Great. Head okay. to the youth room. You're excused You're with excused me. to head to the youth room. You know youth where it room. is. If not, Summit, follow one of these room. knuckleheads. Youth room. And also for everyone, just to so you're aware, just to keep an eye out for the all of the data and the uh, way to connect to Faith Day, which is when we go down to Rocky's Field. Nice catch, especially not looking. Um, that's coming up in the end of the summer. So there's some data out there on the Welcome Center, and there's also things on our website and so forth. So don't miss that. That's a blast. We always go and see right. a game together. This is up to you. The rest is up to me. Let's, uh, let's start with prayer. And uh, I specifically want to lift up all the school shootings. You know, we're averaging one a week now. Um, I think we're at 24 or something like that. Um, and I don't want it to become so commonplace like other areas of crime where we just say, well, there's another school shooting. I don't I don't want us to ever get that comfortable or callous as a church. We're talking about our children and our youth here. And this is a place where it is definitely increasing. Um, and I don't, I don't understand it. I just know that we need the Lord. So let's take a moment and lift this up to the Lord. God, we do lift this up. Uh, we lift it up for several reasons. One is it's just wrong. But it, it's our children that we're talking about, our youth, our grandchildren. Lord, we... We do pray for your wisdom. We do pray for your grace. But Lord, we pray for more than that. We pray for your engagement with us as a nation. Uh, this is definitely a problem in our country that's not found in other countries. I'm not smart enough to know what the answer is. Um, but you are. And I'm grateful that you are God. I don't understand it, Lord. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around why young people would do this to children and youth. Lord, I just pray again for your engagement with us as a nation to solve this problem. Please step in and help us. Um, help us to figure this out. But again, we are grateful for your grace. We are grateful for your wisdom and your deep love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in a, uh, a series called A Servant's Heart. This is a continuation of kind of what we've been working on all year. We've approached it from different angles. If Christ died a countercultural death, what does it mean for us to live a countercultural life? Last week, we asked the question of who was worthy to be a servant from Philippians 1. And I said last week, um, I want you to think of the answer to that question, not in terms of whether you qualify or not. That's not why we ask it. It's actually the opposite the fact that God is at work producing faithfulness and other areas of Christian growth is evidence that you're worthy. Or as he says in Philippians 1, 6, I'm confident that he who began a good work, singular, in you, plural, 
And us as a church, we'll carry it on, we'll complete it, we'll perfect it, depending on which translation you use. In other words, God is doing a work here. One of the greatest testimonies to me of the existence of God is real simple. As I've watched you over the last several years and gotten to know you, uh, as his example, as has been true of all of my Christian life, is I have the privilege of watching God at work change lives. To me, that's the greatest testimony of a sovereign God. Because I know it's very hard to change your life. It's very hard to work through sin. It's hard to forgive people. It's hard to, boy, it's just hard to live the Christian life. And so as I watch you grow, that's the greatest testimony to me of the, of the existence as well as the faithfulness of God. So don't think of whether you're worthy as, am I worthy or not? Think of it as the opposite. The fact that God is at work in your life means you are worthy. That's what it means. Okay, today we're going to wrestle with the question of why, why the example of Jesus helps us to be better servants. And this whole section coming up here in chapter two is all about Christ. So why does the example of Jesus, how does that help us to be better servants? Paul begins by showing how important it is to live life uh, together in unity. Think of a You've all seen musicals and, and dance recitals where things are choreographed. And what would happen if it wasn't choreographed and they ran into each other, right? They ran into each other. You hurt each other. The show wouldn't be any fun to watch. And what makes musicals and, and things like that enjoyable is the phenomenal precision and the finely tuned movements that they all uh, they all live with. And they all it's all it's all choreographed. The music, the dance, it all comes together to produce a single product. That's kind of Paul's image that he has up here. Um, Think about the reasons with me just for a moment why we don't do that as a church. Because we are human. Just think through them with me. I just made a list here. Our theological differences. We are a community church. I have just about every denomination between both services that I can imagine. So I get up here some days and I think, well, today I'm going to upset the Baptists, but that's okay. Next week it'll be the Catholics. The week after that it'll be the Methodists. And so I'm up here looking and faced with a variety of theological differences in our own church. And if you look at our elders, we have a broad spectrum of elders with theological differences. If we're not careful, we're always one step away from fracturing. If we're not careful, we have to tend, tend that well. Uh, smoldering resentments from past events. Boy, it's hard to let go of things that have upset you, isn't it? It's hard to put it behind you. It's really hard. Differences in If you've been here throughout the whole year, you'll notice that what happens up here changes and is fluid. We have different teams up here that bring different styles. When we get to the amphitheater, you'll even introduce different styles there. And that's partly because of your different tastes. Your different tastes. Mark and I monitor the complaints from the congregation. And, oh, yeah, we get them. Yeah, let me give you the list of who complains. Uh, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that. The, and so we listen. And so some days when Mark's playing, somebody complains. But then Rob gets up here and somebody complains. And then we have a guest band, somebody else complains. As long as it's not the same person, we're happy. And the complaining kind of floats around the congregation. That's how we measure how people think about things. The, a difference of worship styles is important. It is, isn't it? How about personality clashes? I know that not all of you like me. I can't figure out why. Nancy helps me with that. Jude helps me with that. 
I know that. It's, we don't always just get along very well, do we? Sometimes our personalities don't really click. And we don't really, we don't really sync together. And that tends to create a little bit of distance. And so maybe a little distance in this part of the congregation. And maybe we resolve that and there's a little bit of distance over here. That's something that we actually pay attention to. We do. Disagreement with the leadership decisions. You know, we have, like I said, a variety of denominations here. We have lots of things going on um, between your differences and what's going on with the county. And I know that we can't satisfy everybody. The elders know that. And so we're, we pay attention to, when we make decisions, who might be hurt by that. It's easy to get hurt by the decisions that we make. I can tell you this, after five years, I can't think of a single decision that wasn't rooted in good motivation. We have good motives. That doesn't mean we're perfect. We're not Jesus. That's why we have a collection of leadership to help us make the best decisions possible. Varying opinions on cultural issues. Some of you were in this church during the amphitheater when the Supreme Court came down with the decision on marriage. And I stood up in front of the whole group and I said, you know, this is a time when we're at risk. From my conversations with you, there's a big chunk of you that think it's okay and right. And there's a big chunk of you that think it's wrong and sinful. And we're on different sides of that divide. Um, A lot of areas that are like that because of our varying backgrounds. And we're always one step away if we're not careful of letting something, a a fracture, begin to separate us. Differences in acceptable moral behavior. Now, this is where the generations actually weigh in differently. If you talk to an older generation, they have a different perspective often than a younger generation on what is morally acceptable and what's not. And so how do we maintain unity with these differences? It's not a simple matter of, well, the Bible says it doesn't work that way. It's more, far more complicated than that. The Bible talks about slavery, and we don't have slavery today, and a variety of other things. Politics. <laughs> Smart move, you said. I've had coffee with many of you, and boy, we are split. Can't help you. <laughs> so there's lots, of, there's lots of dynamics always at work in a church fellowship that, that impact our unity. No question about it. And the leadership, we pay very close attention. In our staff meetings, we talk about it. We want to know if you're hurt about something. We want to know if, if there's something that is, is bothering you. We do want to know that. We want to talk it through. I've had conversations with many of you. And you know you can always approach me. I hope you know that. If you're concerned about something, we can always have coffee or breakfast. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it. And we can talk it through. And maybe I can explain to you why we did it. Or maybe we should do something that we hadn't thought of before. But monitoring and maintaining unity in the church is a very important and critical function. And it starts with servanthood. That's where it begins. Just think of this one simple principle. If you have a need, and several of us know about it, and we can fix it, we have the resources, and we choose to do nothing about it, boy, it's hard to stay unified, isn't it? It's really hard. If, on the other hand, you have a need and somebody comes running to your assistance to help you, you know what the natural byproduct is? Gratitude. It just floats to the surface. 
You don't have to manufacture it. You don't even have to pray for it. When somebody comes and rescues you, gratitude should be the result of that. And so right off the bat, unity is based on servanthood. If we love and serve one another, then gratitude and therefore unity float to the surface and we move closer and closer. If we're not that way, we move further and further apart. Discussing in this chapter, chapter 2 of Philippians. So Paul begins with motivation. Let me read verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if there's any comfort from His love, if there's any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Philippians 2.1. He starts off with motivation. And the motivation is this. We should want to be unified. We should want to serve. Have you ever been encouraged just by simple unity? Maybe you've experienced in your marriages. We have a fantastic marriage. But it's not always perfect. But every now and then we move into that zone where everything just clicks. Then we move out of it and have to work our way back. Right? Have you ever been motivated by that? What it means to to be unified together as a bigger group and to serve the king. That's what he's talking about here. United with Christ. Christ is a Greek word that means anointed. All the kings were anointed. We're talking about King Jesus here. Have has anyone anyone's love ever brought you comfort when you needed it? Someone shows up the hardest time. Have you ever enjoyed working together and seeing the Spirit? You notice it's a capital S for Spirit. This is the word for Spirit, and we think it's the Holy Spirit. Have you ever enjoyed working together and watching the Spirit work in us and through us to accomplish something better and bigger than we've done before? Maybe we've seen a marriage resolve, somebody come to know Christ. Who knows what it is, but we see the Spirit at work. Have you ever experienced tenderness and compassion from someone else in the congregation? Someone showed up when you needed it. These are the questions he's asking. And by the way, the answer to each of these questions is yes, it does exist. And you've all tasted it, haven't you? If you haven't, something is fatally wrong. Down at the deepest core of being a church, we have failed If this isn't there, this is the motivation for why we should serve. Because we should want to. We should want to experience unity. These are the reasons that we should want to work together. So how do we do it? Look in verse 2 of Philippians. If these things are true, which we know they are, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit. Now here you notice the word spirit is not capitalized. It's a different Greek word, so your translators have helped you. We're talking about the ethos, our culture that we're developing. So we're to be like-minded, having the same love, together generating one spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So he says, being like-minded, having the same love, having one spirit, being of one mind. So that raises the question of what is actually unity? What is that? It is not agreement. 
The leadership of Nazi Germany had unity. Gangs have unity. Uh, something far deeper Paul has in mind here. It is the living out together. Together. All of us together. It's the living out together. The divine mission set in motion by Christ, the King. Every time we say the Lord's Prayer, we remind ourselves of it. Bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's the mission of God. That is the fantastic news that we call the gospel. It's so good. God cares about this entire creation. Every single one of you. And when we live together in unity, then what happens is we begin to live this out together as a congregation. It's the final choreographed act, to go back to the the dance metaphor, in which we are the players. We are the dancers. We are God's frontline people to bring the kingdom on earth. It is the ultimate act of love wherein we each work toward the other person such that our inner lives are bound together with the result that the gospel becomes real and authentic, something a criminal gang cannot accomplish, but we can. Unity is far deeper than agreement. Anything less than this is fraudulent. I would argue anything less than this is satanic. One of the reasons we monitor the congregation regularly and your hurts and things like that is because the slightest door, the slightest crack in opening the door is all that Satan needs to slip in. That's all it needs. That's really all it needs. That's all he needs to make his way in. Disunity is the primary example, according to Ephesians, that Satan is present So when you feel yourself all of a sudden at odds, come talk to us. Let's work it through. Psalm 133, how lovely it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. So the question we're going to wrestle with now is how does looking at Jesus help us understand this? What do you think of when you think of a great leader? Who comes to mind? Everybody got somebody in mind? Okay, in the ancient world, they had two big, very powerful men who were leaders. That were their icons. One is Alexander the Great, born 356, died in 323 BC at the age of 33. Seems young by our standards today. He assumed the throne at the age of 20. He quickly asserted himself as the ruler of all of Greece and conquered almost the entire known world at the time. And he's seen as a great leader. He died at 33. Most regarded him as divine, as one of the gods. He had suggested that himself. A little bit later, a few hundred years later, nearer closer to the time of Paul's writing, we have Emperor Augustus. 63 BC is when he was born. He died in AD 14, just before Jesus. I mean, just before Paul. He put an end to the Roman Civil War. He brought peace to the known world, which is what Rome was known for, the Roman Empire. He established a powerful military. He had great organizational skills. He too was considered divine, and he became the model for leadership. Now, let's contrast these two models with Christ. You have enough knowledge of Jesus to do this. Christ was extremely countercultural. It was his resurrection not military strength that declared him to be the Messiah, the king. You have an emperor that's going to die to become great? When's that ever happened in world history, aside from Christ? 
Through his death and resurrection, he demonstrated that he is the true Lord of the world. You see, Alexander and Augustus are pretenders. They're pretenders to leadership. Jesus himself taught this in Mark chapter 10. Let's read Mark 10. Jesus called them together, the disciples, and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Every person in the Roman Empire knew this. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. Boy, we could use some of this in Washington. On both sides of the divide. Shouldn't, can't we? Must be a servant, a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Alexander and Augustus are pretenders. The true leader is Jesus. Jesus thus becomes the model that we are to follow. He becomes the model that establishes the foundation, the deep grounding, if you will, much down below uh, agreement on what unity looks like, and it involves self-sacrifice. True unity involves self-sacrifice, putting each other first. Philippians 2.5. Paul's getting ready to introduce Christ. Uh, Mark mentioned that this was probably a hymn or a poem. I think he was right. So Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. So now let's take a look at how Christ lived out Mark 10 that we just read. The poem. Verse 6. Here's Jesus. Who being in the very nature God, that's present tense, who being, who exists in the very nature as God, does not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Wow. He did not hold on to his position for his own personal advantage. We could use some politicians like this. Can't we? We could. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the, one of the key verses that undergirds our doctrine of Trinitarianism, the deity of Christ. He exists in the form of God, and he took on the form of a human, a man. It was his divinity that committed him to this course of self-sacrifice. It was because he was God that he followed through on this. Because John tells us God is love. And it was his love that compelled us. It was because he was God that he did this. He became a human on our behalf. And this is a true model of leadership and what it means to be a Christian. In fact, this is the model... So theologians refer to this as Christ the servant par excellence. The finest example ever that existed. He is the model of what it means to bind our inner lives together through self-sacrifice so that the gospel becomes authentic. You see, his priority was not his own comfort and happiness. His priority was us. This is God himself. His priority was us. 
And then in verse 9, Paul goes on, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus did what only God could do. Here's the heart of our understanding of God himself. Within the Jewish understanding, they believed in monotheism. So do we. God is one. We believe God is one. The Bible is very clear, both Old and New Testament, so God is one. But within the context of one, we now see different persons or different self-expressions who are intimately related. They honor each other. And this becomes the model of what we are to be like as a church. And then as we begin to live it out, we become the picture out in the world of this one true God. The world knows how to be stabbed in the back. They know what it's like for people to fight for their position. Most of you have been there. What they don't know is how to serve and sacrifice for for each other. That's what they don't know. That's what makes us stand out is that we understand it. You see, all that Jesus did here was a fulfillment of all of Scripture. Isaiah, this is one, we could have picked several, but I picked Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all you hear. This is near the end. This is now beginning to prophesy the return of the Messiah. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... He doesn't need another witness. By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Ever. Here it is. Before me every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me in the Lord, Yahweh, alone our deliverance and strength. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of Scripture. So what does this mean for us? He goes on and begins to explain it in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God, you notice he says, don't continue to work for your salvation. Continue to work it out. In community, work out your salvation. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. This is a repeat of Philippians 1.6. I am convinced that He who began a good work, singular and you plural, He's doing something great in our church, will carry it forward. This is a repeat of that. It's going to happen. For it is God who works in you, plural, to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose, singular. It's the mission of God. God cares about all these people. Verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now you know why I use this verse. Because it's the one thing we all do. We're experts at complaining. Don't have to teach anybody how to complain. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Boy, it sounds like our generation, doesn't it? Solomon was right. There's nothing new under the sun. Sexual harassment exists all throughout the Old Testament. We shouldn't be surprised. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You see, we are placed here as lights in a dark world. We are not to grumble. Rather, we are lights in a dark world. We are a beacon of hope. 
Therefore, we also are a fulfillment of Scripture. Look in Daniel 12.3. Those who are, this is at the end of Daniel, when God has given him the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah and the new age in which we live. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars are forever and ever. That's us. That's us. This is a reference back to Daniel. You see, just as Christ fulfilled the Old Testament, so do we. Christ fulfilled the hopes and dreams of the Old Testament, and guess what we do too? You know how? We fulfill the hopes and dreams of a people out here that don't know any better. Do you think they like being stabbed in the back? Taken advantage of? Abused? Maybe overtaxed? Pressed to work harder and harder? You think they like that? I asked somebody in our church recently who's been in and out of different churches, why did you decide they moved up here? Why did you decide to come to our church? This person had a very broken life. And this person said, I just had to believe. I just had to believe there was a group of people somewhere that would love me in spite of my sin. That's the hope of a broken world. We become the hope of a broken world if if we come together in self-sacrificing unity. Otherwise, we're just a bunch of churchgoers. So we are the hopes and dreams of a world out there that's broken. Paul goes on further and says, we're continuing what he started. Back to verse 16. And then I will be able to boast about, to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Remember in chapter 1, he said, I, I, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't know whether I'm going to live or die. And he says, it doesn't matter. Even if I die, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the attitude that we should have. Paul calls this world momentary light afflictions. May seem big to you at the moment, but in the wake of eternity, it's not. This is what God uses to bind us together to produce this level of depth that we live out together. We live out the faith of the gospel so it becomes authentic. The world cannot do that. All the team building exercises in the world put together can accomplish what the Spirit can. The way we live together is important and fulfills all of Scripture. So what does this mean? I'll give you a couple of thoughts. Number one is we are to take responsibility as Dillon Community Church for ourselves and grow to maturity together. That's what it means. We're to set aside those differences. Make one another more important than yourself. We're to quit our grumbling, our gossiping and dividing and work toward genuine unity. We should want to do that. That should express the heart. That we should want to do that. We together are to become an expression of the kingdom in Summit County. Better than ever before. We've been an expression for quite some time. Can we do better? Can we? We can, can't we? In the rest of chapter 2, by the way, I'm not going to go through it today. You can go through it on your own. But I would encourage you to do it. 
After this section, Paul gives two more examples of self-sacrificing love, both Timothy and Epaphroditus. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 3 and what it means to leave the past behind. What does it mean to leave hurts behind? Divisions, fractures, all that the world can muster up. What does it mean to put it behind you? What does it mean to forgive someone? What does that mean? So I've asked this question a variety of ways after each of the services. Being a serving church takes a lot of hard work. It's really hard to forgive. Being a serving church takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes intentionality where we make the commitment to do it. To not not hold a grudge against somebody, as 1 Corinthians 14 says. As we move together toward being a serving church, are we moving in that direction or are we a bunch of church goers? You have to answer that yourself. That's the one I'm going to leave you with. You've got to figure it out. Are you a churchgoer? Or are you one of those people that loves to divide, gossip, fracture, split, hold grudges? What are you? Are you the type of person that says, no, this is my church. When we have the chance, we have the opportunity to do more than we've ever done in Summit County. What side are you on? Father, thank you for... Thanks for your deep love for us. Thanks for never forgetting us. Thanks for remembering us. Thanks for forgiving us in spite of our stupidity and our sinfulness. Thanks for always working to build our faith, to strengthen us, to build unity among us. Lord, we desire to work together with you in partnership to make that happen because we really do want to be the hopes and dreams of our friends and neighbors out here in this county. Help us. In your son's name, amen. Can I ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering? Ones that make it all this possible. Thank you.